0: Hi. Hi. So, um, what's this book about? You didn't read this one either? Well, I was
1: gonna, but I, uh, accidentally read something else. What? Vogue.
0: I hated the book. Alright? I have no idea what it's about and the
1: writer was clearly on drugs when he wrote it. I mean, it just, it went on and on and on like it was written in a total hurry. If I handed in something like this, there's no way I'd get a good grade on it. I mean, it's boring and it's unorganized. And I only read 30 pages of it anyway. Well, that was passionate, albeit entirely misinformed. Who dares follow Miss Kelly's lucid analysis? Mm
0: -hmm. It's required reading.
1: With Tom and Stella, Episode 75, A Streetcar Named Desire by Tennessee Williams. (laughs) On the Pulitzer Prize, the Critics Award, the most revealing play ever written. New York, London, Paris, Brussels, Rome, all it. It's an even greater motion picture. This is the sto-woman, Blanche Dubois, who wanted so much to stay a lady. A vivid, vibrant, exciting story, because every searching chapter was written by men. Men who taught her to trust and to hope. To love and to hate. The youth who brought remembrance of yesterday. The man who was willing to take her out of the dark alleys of New Orleans. The brute who lied and cheated. Who promised everything. Gave
0: nothing. Don't you ever talk that way to me. Disgusting, bald, greasy.
1: And who do you think you are? A couple of queens or something? Could it be you and me, Blanche? Yeah, what does it cost for single phrase like that? But, but these
0: are tribute from an admirer of mine.
1: Well, he must have had a lot of admiration. Lies! Lies inside and out! All lies! Never inside! I never lied in my heart! You got plenty of room to get by me now. Come
0: on! You think I'm gonna interfere with you?
1: Marry me, bitch. I don't think I want to marry anymore. Oh, you're not clean enough to bring in a house with money. Oh, Lord. Lord. Hello and welcome to Required Reading with Tom and Stella, a podcast brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. This podcast is all about books and literature, and each month we will take a thorough look at one piece of literature we have both read and determine whether or not it is required reading. As always, I am your host, Tom Paneris, and with me is... Stella! Well, not that Stella, but this Stella... Hi.
0: <laughs> Oi. Yeah, th- that would be unfortunate if she and I were, were similar. She goes through a lot. Yes, hello. Welcome. I do want to start off the show by referencing something because you even said a month later, so we'll come back with the answer. And I'm a little embarrassed or embarrassed as some people like to say, about the stones. Now, it is a myth, but people do do it, but they believe that if you suck stones that it produces saliva. Mm. Um, it's a myth. Uh, I mean, maybe it'll happen, but apparently if you suck too hard, then you might asphyxiate because you might swallow the stone. <clears throat> some people also wondered if you're sucking on stones, if you'll get some like calcium or different minerals, and that's also a myth. Mm. So even though... It's wrong. At least I wasn't coming up with something outlandish and it actually existed. But anyways, it's good. yeah, it's good to be here. Uh this is not an uplifting. No, tale this is a really good That we dark are about play. to I was also thinking that it is it it was a joke for us in this show that it kind of um we were doing oh shoot like Lichtenstein kind of imagery, which I've kind of got gotten away from a little bit with as the years have progressed yeah. in the in the <laughs> the episode covers and the first one we had before our show is a woman slapping a man. And so that's where that slap comes yeah, yeah. from. But now it's like, wow, is this actually inappropriate? Because we have the Stella reference of Stanley shouting Stella. And then there's the slap that usually starts at the beginning of the episode. So if you put separate, it's like not bad. And if you're <laughs> kind of connecting what our intention is. But together, you're like, oh, wow, are we condoning spousal abuse accidentally?
1: Uh. I don't know. I I, um, <coughs> I there's something appropriate of you smacking me. So <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
0: yes, we just want people to be reading, really.
1: Yeah. <laughs> uh, so um, yeah, so streetcar named desire. It's yeah, it's been a it we and it's funny. It's like we could do the catch up thing, but we were talking off um, off off time here, off air and stuff, mm-hmm. and we saw each other recently because um, we, we've we met for, twice I think, we met for lunch
0: Oh my god right
1: before uh, Christmas, and then I think we, we just met for, co- as of recording this, we met for okay. coffee this past uh, Saturday mm-hmm. So, yeah
0: I can't believe it, uh, yeah. so see, in real life as well as virtual life, Tom and I are friends Yes
1: yes. So <laughs> I'm just yeah. your textbook mule Um <laughs>
0: That is true. I'm very, I'm very thankful.
1: No, no, no. No, I'm glad you could use it. Stella's grad class was one that I already took, so I, I still had the book. I was like, okay, here, take it. So um, that yeah. saves you thirty bucks or however you, you were going to spend it. So. Right. But yeah, we are talking about Streetcar Named Desire. Uh, it was um, a very... very I was, honestly, like this and I think the Glass Menagerie are probably Tennessee Williams' two most well-known plays. Or maybe that's just because those are the only two I've ever heard of. Um, this certainly is one of his most well-known, especially considering it was made into a uh, legendary film mm-hmm. with um, Marlon Brando and Vivien Leigh and uh, and such. So, and we'll talk all about that. But before we do, um, I have to ask you. So, like, what is your history with this play?
0: Gee whiz, my life is this history. And I mean, honestly, I do have to ask
1: you, like, how many times have people done that damn thing?
0: It's puzzle? it's a lot. It's it's honestly a lot of of the stuff. I mean. You know, whenever anyone meets me, potentially. And as I grew up, there were also the How Stella Got or Grew Back. So it depends oh, on the okay, person yeah. and how, like, cultural they are. Which of the two, I think I would prefer. I've never seen that film. I know Tay Diggs is in it, yeah, and it maybe like, Angela Bassett or it, somebody. It I don't was know.
1: It's based on a novel by Terry McMillan? Oh. She also wrote I... Waiting to Exhale.
0: Oh, okay. Well. Then yeah, so I have no idea. Um, I think maybe it's about a woman who has an affair with a young man. I don't know. Uh, so this one, you know, I would maybe prefer this one if only because it seems like more of a cultured reference, and I do love Tennessee Williams. But it's also funny because people don't understand the context because I think that clip is just always pulled out of context, and you just see Marlon Brando and you know, reading the play and understanding. You're like, well, actually, you know, maybe we shouldn't shout stones and anything like that. <laughs> but, yeah, I get that all the time. Ever since, re- I guess I was, like, an autonomous human being. So when I was smaller, I don't think people would do that because I'd probably just be scared as to why the stranger is... is yelling but, your name. <laughs> is yelling, yeah. But probably high school on or middle school on, it would be frequent. Um, and... Yeah, so I've seen. I'm trying to think if I. I probably saw the film first, and then read the play. I remember getting the play because I actually own it from my high school drama teacher, who had like a box of these and was like trying to get rid of them. So I was like, "Yeah, I'll I'll, I'll take it." But I didn't read it for a while. Glass Menagerie is my favorite. Tennessee Williams play, and that was the the first play that I chose for this podcast. And I do really love *Cat on a Hot Tin Roof*. Oh, I would the probably other say one, that yeah. might be kind of like top, yeah, top in the top five of of his popular, well known ones. um I'm not sure when the last time it was that I had read this or watched this, but it's it is a very unique experience because gosh yeah it's just heavy it's just heavy stuff and it cat on a hot tin roof is also heavy but kind of has like a hopeful ending and this one i would say it doesn't it doesn't have a hopeful ending i guess it's somewhat contented but even with the stage directions at the very end you're like oh my gosh we're we're in this like vicious vicious cycle so it's it is rough, but but I still love him as a as a playwright. So it's kind of always, I guess it's like in my DNA, just given my name, and then going and like researching what is that about, and then oh my gosh, why do people yell my name like that, and then reading it. So, so this is the second time I think that I've actually read the play.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is the first time I've read the play, but much like other works of literature um, or, or a very, very famous uh, popular culture. I've known aspects of it through the references made in other pieces before I even read or saw it. And I, I purposely did not watch the movie uh, prior to recording the episode, but the movie is, as of this recording, is available, I think, on HBO Max. So I think I'm going to sit down and watch it probably in the next few days. First time I ever heard of this movie, funny enough, goes back to my barber shop in in my hometown because they had all these standy ups of old celebrities like um, John Wayne and Marilyn Monroe, and I think Elvis, and between and on the walls they had old movie posters. Um, one of them was Casablanca, one of them was Gone with the Wind, and one of them was a streetcar named Desire. Mm-hmm. And I've so I'd seen that poster. Oh, like dozens of times as a kid and as a teenager whenever I'd, i would go to get, going to get my hair cut at the barber shop downtown yeah so the first time i ever heard the stella bit was an episode of seinfeld um i can't remember the name but it's this episode from the first like three or four seasons and it's 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 unique in that i don't think Kramer is in the episode it's just uh mostly jerry and uh and elaine elaine Kramer and george are in it And Jerry and Elaine are down in Florida at Del Boca Vista with Jerry's parents. And at one point, Elaine is sleeping on this pullout couch and she screws up her back. So she gets muscle relaxers. And as happens in sitcoms and comedy takes too many of them. So she's like completely floopy when she goes to this special dinner that the Del Boca Vista people are throwing for, I think, uh, like Jerry's father and they're, they're introducing people to Elaine and she says, this is so-and-so and his wife, Stella. Oh, uh, Elaine, uh, this is my aunt Stella. Stella! <laughs> Stella! Her back hurts. Stella! And it's, and so that's the first time I ever heard it. And then the, the second time I uh, heard of it, the second time where I became kind of familiar with the plot, was through uh, a st- episode of The Simpsons called A Streetcar Named Marge, where Marge gets the part of Blanche in a musical production of The Streetcar Named Desire named O Streetcar. And Ned Flanders plays Stanley. And, um, and uh, the Stella bit is a song... <laughs> So I knew about this um, for years, uh, but this is the first time I've ever actually. I've been meaning to read it, so I finally, finally read it, and I will go and watch the film as well. So that that's my mm-hmm, sort of mm-hmm. strange roundabout pop culture through all the references in comedy shows, uh, <laughs> origin story with the streetcar named Desire.
0: Man, you were circling around it for years, and now
1: here you are. So, um, yeah, so we usually do an author bio here, but we, if you go back to episode two, we talked about Tennessee Williams. So, but, so what I did was I pulled um, just details about the original Broadway production, and then a little bit about what you should know about, like the film adaptation, some of the inspirations behind it, some of the, you know, real geographical places and things like that. So we'll just do a little bit of background about about the play itself. Now, the play was um, produced and uh, by Irene Selznick and directed by Ilya Kazan. Now, Ilya Kazan um, would direct the film version in 1951. He would also go on to direct Marlon Brando in another very famous movie, and I think they both won Oscars for this, which was uh, On the Waterfront. Um, Kazan is infamous for naming names in front of the House Un-American Activities Committee in the 1950s, which led to the Hollywood blacklist. So there was when he was given a posthumous Lifetime Achievement Academy Award uh, a number of years ago, uh, there was a huge, huge protest over the fact that from from people in Hollywood over the fact that he was getting recognized because of the way he ended really helped end several careers. But that's neither here nor there, you Kazan know, just directed. Uh, this was 1947, uh, and it opened up in New Haven in 1947, but eventually moved to uh, New York City. Um, the original cast, which is in my um, edition of the book, courtesy of the English department of the high school where I teach, <laughs> Is Stanley Kowalski played by Marlon Brando, Stella Kowalski played by Kim Hunter, Steve Hubble was played by Rudy, uh, Rudy Bond, Harold Mitchell was played by Carl Malden, um, Blanche DuBois was played by Jessica Tandy, uh, and then there are other people who were, uh, who are other people who were in the. Um, you know, the minor, the minor uh, characters and things like that. Uh, the biggest change of those major characters in the film, I believe is Vivian Lee, Scarlett O'Hara herself plays Blanche, as opposed to Jessica Tandy. So um, and Jessica Tandy would go on to have her own very well respected career in acting especially later in life um, Jessica a of course is the title plays the title character in the uh, best picture winning film Driving Miss Daisy with Morgan Freeman and that was uh 89 i think and this kind of put brando on the map brando was as far as his theater work was kind of unknown at the time and uh, he eventually the, the play eventually would um, would win a Pulitzer and over the years when you know you know how casts rotate out when plays have long runs Uta Hagen succeeded Tandy in the role of Blanche Carmelita Pope succeeded Hunter in the role of Kim Hunter in the role of Stella. Anthony Quinn uh, succeeded Brando as Stanley. And uh, Tandy got a Tony Award for Best Actress in a Play in 1948 for this. And uh, the original Broadway production ran for 855 performances. It closed in 1949. Now it's been adapted. There have been revivals, many, many, many revivals. Over the years, there was a highly publicized and acclaimed revival in 1992 starring Alec Baldwin as Stanley and Jessica Lange as Blanche, and it was staged at the same theater, the Ethel Barrymore Theater, where the original production was staged on Broadway. Timothy Carhart was Mitch, Amy Madigan was Stella, and also starred James Gandolfini and uh, Aida Turturro, who were both in um, The Sopranos, so... And, uh, and then over the years, again, just, I'm, I'm lucky if you go on the Wikipedia page for a streetcar named desire, it's just revival after revival, after revival, after revival, it clearly is one of the kind of cornerstones of 20th century American theater as far as, I mean, I mean, Williams himself, right? So, I mean, I'm not that much of a student of the theater, so I wouldn't, but I would don't think it's too much of a, like kind of walking out on a limb here to, uh, to say that he's like one of the preeminent playwrights of the 20th century in the United States. So, and this play certainly had an impact and its 1951 adaptation. Like I said, this starred Brando, uh, Vivian Lee, Carl Malden, Kim Hunter um, as our four main characters. It was nominated for one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve 10, 11, 12 Academy Awards. It won four. Best art direction, black and white. Best supporting actress for Kim Hunter as Stella. Best supporting actor for Carl Malden as Mitch. Best actress for Vivian Lee, uh, Lee or Lay. I, will, I Vivian Lee. Lee. Vivian Lee yeah. as uh, Blanche. Brando was nominated for his performance as Stanley. He would go on to win. I think he wins for On the Waterfront, and he definitely wins for The Godfather. Um, and Ilya Kazan um, was direct was nominated for best director. He would not win that, but I think he would win for On the Waterfront, which would have been which was just a few years later. Um, and uh, it was nominated for best picture, but did not win best picture. And yeah, and like I said, it has been uh, notably uh, spoofed. It, it was made into an opera, um, apparently in 1995. Um it was made into a ballet in nineteen fifty-two and and in other things. Uh and then you have um various television play versions, etc. And of course the nineteen ninety-two episode of The Simpsons, A Streetcar Named Marge, <laughs> which where Marge stars in Oh Streetcar and uh Ned Flanders playing Stanley. So now uh, with some of the inspirations, as far as like where some of these things come from, um, there was a streetcar named Desire, believe it or not. The Desire line ran from 1920 to 1948 at the height of the streetcar use in New Orleans. Um, And it ran through the, uh, through the quarter to Desire street in the Bywater district, which I believe is in ward nine. Uh, the Ninth Ward, um, and there's a line in the play where Blanche says, they told me to take a street car named Desire, transfer to one called Cemeteries, and ride six blocks to get off at Elysian Fields. There was an Elysian Fields Avenue on the way to Canal Street. So uh, the character of Blanche is also thought to be based on Williams' sister, Rose Williams, who struggled with mental health problems and became a- incapacitated after a lobotomy. This is not the first time we have encountered mental health issues, lobotomies um, in the mid-20th century. Every once in a while, we circle back to the the, the treatment of mental health patients in the 1950s or 60s. Um, other biographical elements include William's mother being a Southern lady, reflected in the Southern background of Stella and Blanche, because they um, they both grew up on essentially an old plantation uh, named Bel Rev. Uh, and um, we were talking off mic. It's, it, it, it all comes back to Superman, as Michael Bailey says, yeah. because it was used as the uh, as essentially the. Asylum, uh, the Arkham of Smallville. And I want to say it's also like a prison in the in the um, comics, but I'm not sure. It's mentioned at least somewhere in the comics, too. His father was a traveling salesman who enjoyed drinking and playing poker with his friends. So there's a little bit of Stan. That's a little bit of him in Stanley. Williams was born in Mississippi and had a family home in St. Louis. um, And there are common motifs of homosexuality, and mental illness in the play. Uh, that come from his own struggle with his sexual orientation and his ex- sister experience with his sister's mental illness. Um, and it's possibly, and, and this is speculation on Wikipedia, so you know take this as you will. It says, Stanley's loathing for Bl- Branch's prim and proper attitude was probably inspired by William's own father's aversion to his mother's southern heirs. So You know, again, take that as you will. But, yeah, so that's such a little bit of the background of the play. I felt that was a little bit better, easier to do than go just retread Tennessee Williams' life there, and we get a little bit of of the real-life inspiration. So let's go ahead and get to the plot, and then we'll have our discussion. So... After the loss of her family home to creditors, Blanche DuBois travels from Laurel, Mississippi to the New Orleans French Quarter to live with her younger married sister, Stella, and Stella's husband, Stanley Kowalski. Blanche is in her 30s with no money and she has nowhere else to go. Blanche tells Stella that she has taken a leave of absence from her English teaching position because of her nerves, and this is later revealed to be a lie. Blanche laments the shabbiness of her sister's two-room flat. She finds Stanley loud and rough, eventually referring to him as, quote, common. Stanley, in return, is suspicious of Blanche, does not care for her manners and resents her presence, which is already interfering with his regimented but hedonistic lifestyle. He's a drunken gambler. From the first scene, Blanche is nervous and jittery. She is reluctant to be seen in the glare of light and seems to have a drinking problem. She's also deceptive and is critical of her sister and brother-in-law. Stanley later questions Blanche about her earlier marriage. Blanche had married when she was very young, but her husband had committed suicide. This memory causes her obvious distress. We later learn that she suffers from guilt due to the way that she had reacted to finding out her husband's homosexuality and his fatal reaction. Stanley, worried that he has been cheated out of an inheritance, demands to know what happened to Belle Reve, once a large plantation in the Dubois family home. He tells Stella about the Napoleonic Code, which in those days was a legal right of a husband over his wife's financial affairs. Blanche hands over all the documents pertaining to Belrev. While looking at these papers, Stanley notices a bundle of letters that Blanche emotionally proclaims are personal love letters from her dead husband. For a moment, Stanley seems caught off guard over her proclaimed feelings. Afterward, he informs Blanche that Stella is going to have a baby. The night after Blanche's arrival, during one of Stanley's poker games, Blanche meets Mitch, one of Stanley's poker-playing buddies. His courteous manner sets him apart from the other men. Their chat becomes flirtatious and friendly, and Blanche easily charms him. They like each other. Suddenly becoming upset over multiple interruptions, Stanley explodes in a drunken rage and strikes Stella. Blanche and Stella take refuge with upstairs neighbor Eunice Hubble. When Stanley recovers, he cries out from the courtyard below for Stella to come back by repeatedly calling her name until she comes down and allows herself to be carried off to bed. Blanche is shocked to see that her sister has returned to her husband right after he assaulted her. After Stella returns to Stanley, Blanche and Mitch sit at the bottom of the steps in the courtyard where Mitch apologizes for Stanley's coarse behavior. The next morning, Blanche rushes to Stella and describes Stanley as subhuman, though Stella assures Blanche that she and Stanley are fine. Stanley overhears the conversation but keeps silent. When Stanley comes in, Stella hugs and kisses him, letting Blanche know that her low opinion of Stanley does not matter. As the weeks pass, the friction between Blanche and Stanley continues to grow. Blanche has hope in Mitch and tells Stella that she wants to go away with him and not be anyone's problem. During a meeting between the two, Blanche confesses to Mitch that she once was married to a young man, Alan Gray, whom she later discovered in a sexual encounter with an older man. Gray later took his own life when Blanche told him she was disgusted with him. The story touches Mitch, who tells Blanche that they need each other. Mitch himself has lost someone and seems to have empathy with Blanche's situation. Later, Stanley repeats gossip to Stella from a CD salesman with contacts in laurel that Blanche was fired from her teaching job for an involvement with an underage student and she lived at a hotel known for prostitution. Stella erupts in anger over Stanley's cruelty after he reveals he has already told Mitch. Later that evening, at Blanche's birthday party, there is an empty seat at the table for Mitch. And he doesn't show up. Stanley gives Blanche a birthday, quote, present It's a one-way bus ticket back to Laurel. An argument ensues between Stella and Stanley, but is cut short as Stella goes into unexpected labor and is taken by her husband to the hospital. As Blanche waits at home, Mitch arrives and confronts Blanche with the stories that Stanley has told him. She eventually confesses that these stories are true. She pleads for forgiveness, and angry and humiliated Mitch rejects her. Nevertheless, he demands intimacy with her, suggesting that it's his right since he has waited so long for nothing. Blanche threatens to cry fire and tells him to get out. Stanley returns home to find Blanche alone in the apartment. She's descended into another fantasy about an old suitor coming to provide financial support and take her away from New Orleans. She falsely claims that Mitch had asked her for forgiveness, but she had rejected him. Stanley goes along with the act before angrily scorning Blanche's lies hypocrisy and behavior, and calling out her lie about Mitch. He advances toward her. In response, she threatens to attack him with a broken bottle, but is overpowered. Blanche collapses on the floor, and Stanley is last seen taking her unconscious into his bed. Sometime in the near future, during a poker game at the Kowalski apartment, Stella and Eunice are seen packing Blanche's meager belongings while Blanche takes a bath in a catatonic state, having suffered a mental breakdown. Although Blanche has told Stella about Stanley raping her, which he denies, mm. Stella cannot bring herself to believe her sister's story. When a doctor and a matron arrive to take Blanche to the hospital, she initially resists them and the nurse painfully restrains her. Mitch, present at the poker game, breaks down in tears. The doctor is far more gentle. She goes willingly with him, saying, whoever you are, I have always depended on the kindness of strangers. The poker game continues uninterrupted thank you by the way to wikipedia for that plot synopsis which is a pretty thorough which is a pretty thorough plot synopsis by the way yeah so before we get into our discussion i know this is the, the second time i think you said you've read it uh did you like it
0: i do enjoy it um yeah it's it's one of those words, right? Yeah, I know, right, that we try to work out what what that means, because it doesn't necessarily give enjoyment or joy. But I think it's um, I think it's a, a great play. So, yes, <laughs> or at least I think it's worthwhile. How about that? Yeah.
1: No, yeah, I, I had um I think it took me maybe a day and a half to read this. And that's like in two. I read this essentially like in two or three sittings. Um, it just gripped me. I was like this, you know, I got in and everything and I knew some of the background. I knew, I knew that, you know, um, uh, what was going on. Um, and I was just, I think by the time I got to like the second, the third or fourth scene, I was like, I don't want to put this. I think I read it into my planning period through lunch because I wanted to finish it. So it was, it was, I found it really compelling and really understood why this is, um, you know, has resonated over the years. So yeah, I mean, yeah, it's it's hard to say, oh, I enjoyed this play. Like, you know, you enjoy a twelfth night, <laughs> you know, <laughs> or a midsummer night's dream or something. This is really dark. Um no doubt. And such in fact, um he one of the things I noticed and I noticed this about the Glass Menagerie as well, the level of detail in the scene setting and some of the other stage directions, like he you know, maybe it's because I read so much Shakespeare. Shakespeare's stage direction is very sparse. So I don't know if what Williams is doing here is actually more the norm or not. I haven't read... I don't think I've read enough modern plays. There's a lot of, like, shadow imagery that's supposed to be going on in the background. Like, it's supposed to represent how we're not in the best neighborhood, etc. During the scene where Stanley assaults uh, Blanche toward the end, um, there's, like... Uh, the stage directions are like, we're supposed to get kind of all this, um, this scenery, and um, Blanche goes to call the operator and and such, and uh, the stage directions in this particular scene, you know, she she goes into the, the room or right whatever, she screams, don't come in here, we see lurid reflect, reflections appear on the wall around Blanche. The shadows are of a grotesque and menacing form. She catches her breath crosses to the phone and jiggles the hook. Stanley goes into the bathroom. So she's on the phone. Um, and then we hear like the night is filled with inhuman voices, like cries in a jungle. The shadows and lurid reflections move sinuously as flames along the wall spaces through the back wall of the rooms, which have become transparent can see the sidewalk. A prostitute is rolled a drunkard. He pursuits her along the walk, overtakes her and is there's a struggle. A policeman's whistle breaks it up. The figures disappear. And so like, there's, there's sort of all of this, tension going on in the background accompanying that scene. And I know that like when we read the glass menagerie, he like had all these stage directions for like screens that were up and things. I think that in some productions were abandoned and stuff. Um, do you think that add is that necessary for the play to you? Is it just kind of gilding the lily? So to speak, is it, is it just a little bit of, of excess? Um, do we, do we need all of that in terms of, um, stage direction to understand that we're not in the best of places
0: i i think we do need it um so i i do frequently read plays Mm
1: -hmm.
0: and see them if, if i have the chance and this is i would say it's it's about standard some might be more some might be less but it's it's pretty i would say that's pretty average what he's doing there but in setting all of that up setting up also i think i do want to talk about kind of the temperature of of the season as well mm-hmm. because i think that leads to to some things but i think it gives us a sense that this is not the best of situations <laughs> Um, not only with the the people that are involved, but kind of stacking these families on top of each other, and there seems to be aggression, you know, throughout this this verticality. And yeah, the shadow play is is another thing. So I think Williams has a very specific vision as to how he wants this play performed, mm-hmm. and. I wonder how much creativity uh, is kind of allowed because I I think there are playwrights that leave it open to like, hey, this is kind of a rough idea, but it's up to you how you want to do it. But I think very specifically he knows what he wants to be said about something without actually saying it. And I think um, those stage directions uh, help service that. So I, I don't think it's Gilding the Lily. I think it does give you a sense Of what things are like, because you don't really if you take all that away and you just are reading the dialogue, it takes you a little longer to, like, figure out what what is the situation? What is the setting? But the setting, I think, immediately puts you into the place and then things start to build upon that. And you're like, oh, wow, you know, this isn't the best place, but maybe they're making the best of it. Oh, wait, actually, no, there's other things going on that's below the surface.
1: Yeah, I can see how if you had a, um, I can see how this can go bad in a in a bad production. (laughs) You know, I think anything like this, like, get overdone and stuff. But I I agree with you. It's almost like you're scoring the the play. You know, like you would score a movie, and um, it. You know, it's uh, there are things that you could do. Like I said, I haven't seen the, the movie version yet, but um, I think there are things that you don't need to do in the film because the film, film, and, and the nature of filming something allows you to set scene and have and, and have mood that way without being as specific as he is in the stage directions. But here, yeah, there's the, you're exactly right. Now you mentioned the the heat, the time, uh, the the weather. Um, And the temperature, um, where were you going with that?
0: Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Well, I was trying to think. I've been thinking about this actually all day, that the heat, I mean, we're in New Orleans, or we're in Louisiana anyways. And there's not much like stage direction as to saying like the heat is oppressive, but you can tell by people saying like you're sweaty or you see Stanley – changed his clothing a lot Mm -hmm. and removed like his shirt and things which i think goes to his masculinity as well as other things but i feel like the oppressive nature of this heat is almost making like a powder keg Mm -hmm. and i think i feel like people's emotions and in particular anger is always at the surface and i was trying to think if we had done if we had done another play or another book or I'm thinking of a film where because of the heat and some like people, it's just always there. It's mm. always simmering. So you're always waiting for something <sighs> to happen, which is how I was feeling this entire time of like when is Stanley going to snap When is he going to snap yeah. because he gets aggravated. He yells and then like – but. It's like it's always beneath the surface, and then it like takes. It's almost like this innocuous moment that Stella might do something that then he snaps, yeah. which you you weren't even expecting. Whereas there are other times, so I feel like almost this heat and this this oppression um, causes, or it at least brings this to the fore a bit more. Um, but I wondered what you thought if if maybe that. Um, because it's very specifically in the summer and then I think at the very beginning of fall, Mm -hmm. but it's September and I I think at the end Blanche is taking a bath, but it's like super hot and so everyone can feel that too. So I'm sure that gets everyone aggravated. So I don't know if you feel like the temperature itself is also maybe a a player in that.
1: I think it is. I think I just – because it's New Orleans – I think I just took that for granted, but yeah, I can, Mm -hmm. I can picture all of that. Um, I'm kind of reminded of, I want to say like, do the right thing or, or a movie like that, where there is a lot of tension throughout the movie. And the, the fact that it's summer is a contributing thing. It's almost, you know, that there's the season of it there. There's a couple other movies like that too. And I, I, off the top of my head, I can't remember, but that, that heat, Um, especially because you're in the Deep South. The heat and humidity in the Deep South is oppressive, right? So, um, I mean, Mm -hmm. the heat and humidity here in the summer is oppressive, and we're in Virginia. We're not in Louisiana. So I can't imagine that it's contributing positively to anybody's moods. So, yeah. Um, So we're going to go through some of the characters, and uh, I, I will start with Blanche. So she, she's putting on, she appears to be putting on airs, and I think she's putting on airs for the beginning of the play. Um, calling Stanley Common, kind of reminiscing, keeping up the old, um, well, a certain other Blanche that we in pop culture are familiar with credit where credit is due to Rue McClanahan for playing that Blanche, but there is that sort of airs, right? You know, that, that Southern gentility, you know, et cetera. <laughs> the fact that Vivian yeah. Lee plays her in the film doesn't hurt this interpretation too, because she probably right. played, she played what was probably the most famous Southern belle in all of, um, you know, American cinema. Uh, how long does it take you to realize that something's wrong and she's being deceptive? Do you know it right away or does it take you a little while to figure out that like, you know, she is she's essentially lying to us? I.
0: I take I I see it right away, um, but I don't know the depths of her lies, so I can tell that something's a bit hinky in particular because of the drinking, because the drinking you immediately are associating with her. But then she'll she goes on this kind of ramble of how, you know, never more than like one or two. But she's already had something. She's like already <laughs> been looking for it. So I think that I'm I I suppose this is unfair for people who, you know, drink socially and everything. But I don't necessarily trust someone who I think immediately I thought is probably an alcoholic. Mm. And um. Yeah, just because she barely arrived and then she was she was right into things. So I felt like there was deception already, but just the depths, you know, how how far was she kind of going to go in this um, or that that was like a weird phrase in what? What are you talking about? But you know with, with the house and what she's lost and with these quote unquote gentleman callers, you know is she lost? I kind of kept thinking oh is Blanche in the future? Is she Amanda Wingfield from The Glass Menagerie? Mm. Uh, because you know Amanda kept reminiscing about these wonderful times but you feel like those probably actually happened. It's just that she's stuck there and with Blanche I think that they're not actually she's having probably um not romantic encounters with mm-hmm. men but she's she's because of her reputation in trying to as you said put on airs she's falsifying information so it's it's really sad like she's a sad she's a tragic character. But yeah, it's it's unfortunate and, and hard to hard to trust her.
1: Yeah. And she does show us how the past is really important to this play as as is the present. Um, And the past comes mm-hmm. up in myriad ways, both in this sort of nostalgia that she has, but also like when the kind of the truth is really revealed about, you know, to Mitch and then Mitch's reaction, like the past comes back to haunt her rather than please her. I wondered if this era of refinement, so this is 1947 when this is being um, first produced. The film's 1951, so we're getting into the post-war years. I could tell that she had a drinking problem by the way she was consuming so much of it. Yeah. Um, and she was consuming some pretty hard liquor, and this I, I don't mean by by that, I don't mean to sound sexist, but it's not the type of thing you'd expect a woman in the that day and age to drink. I don't know. It's like it's it's for somebody as soft and genteel as her. I don't expect her to get like, you know, half a bottle into whiskey. The minute she gets there, you know, uh, you expect her to drink something that's a little more suitable to that type of character. Um, and I, I'm really I'm not saying that to sound sexist or chauvinistic. It's just kind of like the perception of, you know, and because, you know, people people still drink nowadays, too. But like the socially drinking among people was, um, you know, was still still very accepted. And you see a lot of. <laughs> Um, a lot of it in these things. So I I, I, I hand waved it a little bit. But then, yeah, I started to notice like she's drinking quite a bit, you know, mm-hmm. and, and it's kind of so there's, there's it, it was kind of the first crack in it. But I did like the fact that over the course of the play, you learn more and more about what the truth was. So it was because because Stella and Stanley didn't know anything either. Right. So it, I, I like the fact that we are with them as if we're part of new orleans or we're part of this neighborhood or we're part of this apartment building or tenant wherever whatever we want to call the house that they live in the apartment that they live in and we are finding out about blanche as they are finding out about blanche as opposed to us kind of being the blanche and and discovering all these things about these characters it's actually the other way around she's the outsider the intruder and she is outside and intruding kind of into our lives, and I like how that was that was set up. And I also wanted I wonder if he is making some sort of statement, however tiny or sly, about the way the fetishization of the old South, right? Gone with the Wind being a great example of it. Um, mm-hmm. The old plantation, like you, you know, you could still take plantation tours you know, and things like that. And that, that whole idea of even even now, if you wanted to go to the supermarket and pick up a couple of uh, Southern style, Southern living, Southern wedding, Southern whatever, you would see things regarding plantations and decor, plantation weddings. Like these, this is still a thing very much. And I wonder that if... There is, I use the word gilding, you know, there's a gildedness to Blanche that the, the much beneath the surface, it is very, um, there's nothing there. It's, 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 it, is, it she is not rotten. She has metaphorically rotted. And mm. I think she, I wonder if he's saying that about the way we look at this. Old South, Southern, whatever—you know—that there's something fundamentally wrong with all of this, but you're putting this layer of, of prettiness and guilt on it. That's guilt on it. Sorry, G-I-L-T. That um, that is not. Uh, that's that's masking all of that.
0: And I mean, that's something that I think we deal with even to today. Mm-hmm. That everyone has this really romantic idea of what the South was like. Yeah. So. Yeah, potentially.
1: Yeah, because even like Harper Lee is nostalgic in *To Kill a Mockingbird* about her father, even if she is exposing a lot of the gross injustices taking place in Maycomb um, in in that particular novel. Um, but yeah, it's um, and then I uh, I agree with you regarding Amanda Wingfield and *The Glass Menagerie*. *The Glass Menagerie* was three years before this, by the way. Um, and, uh, as far as uh, production. So, uh, but then, but then, you know, we also see like, you know, they, the neighborhood where they're, they are integrated is not the best word because I don't see them associating with any of the black characters, but there are black characters in and around and they just seem, um, they just seem there, you know? Um, They're just kind of part of the scenery. They have the occasional line and stuff like that. And then you have um, this, uh, the whole thing with Blanche's husband who had taken his own life. And the circumstances seem to be that she caught him with another man. And she told him that he disgusted her. And um, he took his own life as a result. And now this was 1947 when this was first produced, uh, in many states. And I would imagine Louisiana homosexuality was an actual punishable crime. You know, mm-hmm. you could be locked up for being, for getting caught in the act. Like, you know, he, she could have turned him over to the police. Uh, so that was the, the view of homosexuality back in those days. Uh, but I wonder, um, you know, was she more ashamed that he was gay or was she more upset that he killed himself? And I can't tell if it's one or both because she could, uh, you could very well, you could very well, if, 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 if I caught my wife with another man, I could very well say I'm disgust, you you disgust me because sure. of just the act of infidelity. But, you know, this compounds yeah. it because he was he was caught with another man. So. Yes,
0: I I guess the other one is that what she said that she indirectly or directly led him to kill himself. Mm. I think that a lot of the f- reason why she feels this way, I think she honestly loved him. That might have been like. Maybe it was the best time in her life. I don't know. And, you know, she still had her her beauty and everything, but uh, she lost him and because of something that she had said. Mm-hmm. So I think there's a lot of guilt in there. And I guess this was the first moment that a man sort of betrayed her or left her, even though um, she felt like she was so beautiful. And I guess she wasn't beautiful enough. Technically, she just wasn't his type. So I think it's kind of a mixture of things there.
1: Yeah, there's a sense of... I mean, rightfully, so like... I wouldn't have wanted this character portrayed any other way. But there is a total sense of entitlement coming off of Blanche. It's part of her putting on her airs, right? Like, you know, there's there's so much of her that is... um, that she's in denial when the, when the play starts and it's this slow deterioration of, of her character. Um, But yeah, so um, there was a sense of uh, your favorite word. Yeah. Betrayal. In, in, in what happened too. And yeah, you know, it's like, you're right. She, she is a tragic character. And I don't know if I'm rooting for any character in this play. Maybe Stella, because I feel really, really... I I think I feel more sympathy for Stella than I do Blanche. Which just sounds cruel toward Blanche. But like with Stella, she is in this abusive marriage. And this is a time... Like, Blanche is the only one who sees this as like, hey, there's something wrong here. Maybe you should get out of this. And I think she even, you know, when when she when she takes Stella out of the apartment after Stanley smacks her around, Blanche really is like, we're going to get out of here. And, you know, like so she's very protective of her sister. Now, Blanche is older, too. So that's, you know, so she's, she's doing the older sister protection thing. And then she is shocked when Stella goes back to her husband. Um, which was not uncommon at that time, and and in some cases not is not is still this is still something that still happens today, by the way, um, you right. know. But there there was a lot of this, um, and and I feel, I, I think I felt for Stella more than any of the other characters because of just. How I don't know I could see the conflict in her as to like why she's doing this and and why she continues to take this, and it's to me it's much just as sad as watching Blanche just deteriorate um and I think I knew pretty early on that this play was not gonna end well for anybody mm-hmm. um so it wasn't like a rooting for somebody to win thing it was more of a who I had the most sympathy for. And, um, and Blanche, uh, you know, she says the uh, she believes the opposite of death is desire. What do you think that means? At least in the context <laughs> of this play.
0: Yeah, I – this was a very striking line. I, I think Tennessee Williams has many striking lines in his mm. plays. I, this one in particular, I associate to mean that if you – are not desirous of something or someone, then you must be dead. Mm. Like living is being desirous of something or someone. Um, which I mean, w- we are meant as human beings to, to love yeah. uh, this. I think ratchet maybe um, pulls it up a bit like desire. I associate more so with lust. So it's not necessarily the most like beautiful part of of love there and i think we see that in how violent stanley's love uh-huh. is uh but that's that's what i think um and, and you can kind of see it i think in in some of the the characters i know that what kind of your follow-up question was where do we see that but you know if you think about mitch's mother who's seems to be on her deathbed the entire play yeah and she is – you know, she's on her own. We see what Mitch is like in the last scene after everything has happened. And even it, the, his his final scene with Blanche and then the final, final scene and just how dejected he is and, and kind of how he has changed more from this gentleman caller to this because now he doesn't have that um, – he might be desirous, but it's not returned or yeah. anything. I think you can, you can kind of see that. Um, and then – I don't know that that flower woman was very um, interesting. She's so not you know, who's just walking and asking. Um, she has flores for the for the poor, poor, La muertos, um, los muertos. So flowers for the dead. Like that was a very interesting whatever, an interstitial um, person within the scene. But yeah, so that's what what I think is, you know, you are not alive unless you are having these really strong feelings for someone or something yeah,
1: or somebody is desiring you and and so she is so insistent on not being shown in the light because she feels like she she is self-conscious about whether or not her beauty has faded um, she's working to make herself desirable if she has fulfilled that desire as a by supposedly working in a brothel you know um, and back in, in Mississippi. And also um, if we, if we are to believe the rumor that Stanley hears, which I think she does confirm is that she got fired because she was having an illicit relationship with somebody at work. I think one of her students and uh, you know, even in 1947, that's a no. So, um, but then you get like, again, Mitch, Mitch frustrates me you know, Stanley will infuriate you. Mitch is really frustrating as a male character because Mitch gets a good amount of attention. I think he's, the, he's the, Carl uh, Malvin one for supporting actors. So he is the main supporting player in the, in the play next Stanley, you know, it's one of Stanley's friends, poker buddies and he gets a decent amount of attention because he's, he and Blanche start dating and he is very nice to Blanche. He seems to be understanding, but then stanley goes and just glaze all spills all the tea and he responds
0: he had to investigate the tea yeah, first yeah and
1: then and then he finds out the truth and and blanche you know, took her credit you know blanche is lying and deceptive at the beginning of the play toward the end she is from what i can understand she's pretty honest you know Then he's like, well, I can't date you, but he's disgusted by her. And but then he turns around. He's like, yeah, but you owe me the sex. And I'm sitting there going. She doesn't owe you anything, first of all. But again, like the term toxic masculinity did not exist in 1947. Perhaps it did. I don't know. I think it's a more recent term, at least in our in our cultural lexicon. But like this to me is just as toxic as the stuff that Stanley does, too. I mean, Stanley is violent, mm-hmm. but this with Mitch, this is like. Uh, it's it just I don't know, I was I was frustrated and disgusted by like that, that idea that like, you know, so he gets no sympathy for me at the end when he's crying as she's taken away, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, like, what am I, am I off base here? Am I using today's moral standards and applying it to something that is much older? Am I on the right track here?
0: Oh, oh, that is interesting, actually. You know, how would you be if you were reading it mm-hmm. then, if you would think has she Yeah, because I think the question is, if we were to like put ourselves in that mindscape, has she led him on and is it therefore now I'm I'm pretending as if I'm at this time period. Has she led him on and therefore does she in fact owe mm-hmm. him something? And I would say that even though she did lie about her age and I guess her life over um, over where she was coming from, Laurel. Yeah, Laurel. That she did not, like she would barely even give him a kiss. She would barely even give him a kiss and um, I, I would say uh, feigned maidenhood or virginity. Yeah. So it, she was not throwing herself at him. I think she was very cautious. So I would say no. I would say no. I think the reason why he now believes he is owed something is because what well, she was putting out for all these other guys, what's different about yeah. me? Like why, why wouldn't I? And it's very interesting to see this change with Mitch because the first time that they encounter one another, you almost want it to be a romantic tale like, oh, maybe this will be the bright spot in this play, maybe this will be something good for Blanche because he really perks up when she first appears or he first sees her. She looks at him and says he's clearly different from the rest, isn't he? And Stella said yes. He seems like a gentleman. He's living with his mother, which of course now is is kind of a cliche but, you know, she is age, so you're like oh, he must be, like, he's caring for his mother, seems like a loving guy. So to have this flip is is very interesting and i think a lot of it is because of stanley and it's just one of those things where somebody and i feel like we've seen other media incarnations of this happen where there's a nice guy and maybe he's made fun of a lot by like another guy that's kind of a bully and in particular about this girl and then like forces him to force her to do stuff like we've seen that so i think mitch's character change is really stark it's 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 a bad dynamism but i think a lot of it is because of stanley and his influence and how he poorly talked about blanche and yeah unfortunately he had to work it out like you even still see glimmers because he had to go and ask he did his own investigation because he didn't initially believe stanley but it was like needling him so he had to yeah. do it Um, So it is interesting to see the spectrum of people because you have Stanley, who is very much toxic, um, a toxic man. And then you have Mitchell, who's kind of on that sliding scale. And then you have Blanche's first husband, who kind of is described as um, like he has this almost feminine quality Mm -hmm. to him and is softer. And so like – you know she she realized something was was different about him and that is associated with being like that's a bad quality because look it leads you to homosexuality mm-hmm. kind of thing so it is very interesting the types of men that we see and of course whoever is married to Eunice i can't remember steve yeah, I think so. um he's kind of with stanley or maybe a little bit below but tennessee Mr. Williams very much is showing, I think, this this spectrum of manhood and that it can, in fact, change and how like how disastrous it can be either on society or society on them.
1: Yeah, this would be if if I were ever to do a, a unit or course where I just took several works of literature and talked about themes of masculinity this would definitely be one of those works to use, um, yeah. specifically for the reasons you just talked about. Because I, I've we, I mean, you're right. We've seen that trope of the guys of the girl. He finds out at one point that like she's gotten around. That I'm putting air quotes up to the mic. You know, I don't want to use mm-hmm. the S word, but um, you know, and and he is kind of like, well, then then you you need to put out for me. You owe me, which is no, you know, we all know that's not true. You, 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 you. Nobody owes you sex, but there is that sense that we've seen that before, and we've seen it too in, in some cases, where, uh, yeah, the the man will get violent, you know, and, and Mitch doesn't, although she threatens to call fire and yell fire, and 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 he he bolts because, you could tell he's not one hundred percent confident what he's doing anyway. Like you know, he's being. He's being very twitchy um, when he does it. So, Uh, but with Stanley, what's interesting with Stanley. He with Mitch, it's about sex. And it's about, in some cases, romance and love and affection with Stanley. I think it's all about power because like because he is he is he smacks Stella around and he is he he for lack of a better word he essentially owns her right he, he is she does what he wants she stays with him he has mean in turn submission right. Blanche isn't Blanche and he do not get along mainly because she is as strong a personality as he ever was, and so I have a question of what does Stanley want, and I think he he wants control, you know, and that's one of the reasons he is such a horrible person
0: mhm y- yes, yeah, I would agree. I mean, just little things like. Still asking him to, you know, end the poker game or turning on the radio. Um, Yeah, little things like that. He he does, in fact, yeah, want to be in control. And I think that's because, you know, losing it or having a woman call him something or anything is an insult to his manhood. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, and... (sighs) I guess it's more I'm a bit confused, like how, you know, what Stella saw him in him initially. Mm. Um, and also, I wonder how. If his poverty, maybe it's I guess he's not poor necessarily, but he certainly is, I guess, he blue collar. Yeah. Is that right? He's certainly yeah, a blue collar kind of guy. And I don't know if this means anything to him because sometimes it does. He's talking about the Napoleonic oh. Code. He's really interested in in getting this money. Um, that whole scene where Blanche is talking to Stella about him and him being common, and he's there, but they don't know that he's there. So that's kind of simmering there. But I but I don't know. It never comes up though necessarily about him being self conscious about being poorer than Stella and Blanche were at some point. Uh, so there are some things that I wonder about, but yeah, I think it is all about his his manliness. I mean he, he is in practically every scene, he is removing a layer mm-hmm. of clothing. And I think that says a lot, honestly. I think, yes, there's some sexiness to it. I think Williams is playing that up, but he is doing that for a reason to kind of show. And and it makes certain people uncomfortable. Blanche is like telling him, you know, don't take off any more clothing because who knows what's going to happen after he removes his clothing. So. Yeah, it's it's very interesting. What was your initial question? Oh, just yes, about the power. Yeah, I agree. Control. I having yeah. power and being in control, of being that that number one. Yep. Yeah, top putting, the dog. Putting yep.
1: putting these women in their place, I think, is a good phrase to yeah. use with him. The money thing. I think he's just looking to exploit like, or it's something he can hold over her too, right? Like that's another aspect of control. If he can find out that Stella is supposed to receive some whatever money because they were sisters, and I think they're the only last surviving um, uh, family members of the people in this, um, in in from Belrev, uh, he is assuming that Stella is coming into money, if there is money, right? And he can hold it over Blanche and Stella and the whole – he he sound that whole Napoleonic Code speech It probably was true. <laughs> but he just sounds like every other – forgive the slur – Guido blowhard I knew from um, Long Island who just kind of all of a sudden they think they know the law and everything. And it's just like you have no idea what the hell you're talking about, even though I'm pretty sure the Napoleonic Code thing was actually true and he knew what he was talking about. But you're talking about like him being blue-collar. Also, um, and I, I think this was more of a, again, back in the 1940s and 1950s. This is probably more of a scandalous thing in the for, for a Southern belle to marry a Polak, you know. I mean, the, the guy, he's he's Polish, you know. So there's that unrefinement of the Polish immigrant, you know. What you know, he's not a blue blood, you know, and and all of those things, and and. I don't know. Is this just a thing with, with the reason Stanley was always as Stanley was attracted to Stella, you know, that she, she desired him as we see. Um, maybe it has to do with the boy from the wrong side of the tracks thing. I mean, I know that's a cliche by now, but I yeah. mean, you know, why didn't I, I mean, there, there's just, there, there's a, there's a, there's a cliche, it's a cliche for a reason. And there's a whole trope in movies like this and even in, in romantic comedies because of the nice girl dating the, uh, the a-hole. Right. Mm. So it tracks, it tracks with that. And he's awful. And he, he just, um, so there's the end of the play. They have this, she and he and Blanche have this near violent confrontation. And I phrase this, the scene, it's crazy question like this. It says, it seems to end with him raping her. It's never done on stage. Right. And all the, the, the stage directions are such so that he like she she breaks a bottle. She's um, they are struggling. You know, he he is he is assaulting her in some ways. It is implied that he is going to sexually assault her. Um, he's right now at this point, he is just kind of um, roughing, uh, roughing her up, so to speak. So. She's got the bottle, she smashes it on the table and faces him clo- clutching the broken top. He says, What did you do that for? She said, So I could twist the broken end in your face. And the thing is, is like with Blanche and Stanley, one of the things is that she gives she she gives as good as she gets with it. She is not afraid to stand up to him as opposed to her sister, and that he feels that's why I said it was about control, he feels threatened by her. Which I think this is why the important the, the scene with um where he's screaming Stella is so important to her. To, to the character because Stella goes back. So he's, she's caught in the middle of a fight for control. I'm, I'm off on a tangent here, but like Stella's kind of caught in the middle of like Blanche can take her and go and Blanche is in charge. Stanley can take her and go and Stanley's in charge. So Stella doesn't have a lot of agency in this play. So, um, so back to this, He's like, I bet you would do that. She says it wouldn't. He goes, Oh, so you want some Rough House? All right, let's have some Rough House. And I can hear Brando saying this, and I've never seen the movie. He springs toward her, overturning the table. She cries out and strikes at him with the bottle top, but he catches her wrist. She's like, Drop it, drop it. We've had he says, Tiger, Tiger, drop the drop it. We've had this date with each other from the beginning. She moans. The bottle top falls. She sinks to her knees. He picks up her inert figure and carries her to the bed. The hot trumpet and drums from the four deuces sound loudly. So I think it's implied that... Now, in the synopsis I read, it sounded like she was unconscious. And he took her? I'm trying to figure out the exact circumstances because... Even if Blanche were lying when she told Stella that Stanley raped her, Stella was never going to take her side. I'm pretty convinced of that based on what, you know.
0: Well, she says I couldn't believe her and stay.
1: Yeah, Yeah. and and I think
0: so. And then and Eunice agrees with her, like, yeah, you have just gotta gotta suck mm -hmm. it up, which is like, it's so baffling. Like, oh my god, it's so baffling.
1: But we've seen it so many times. Seen it happen.
0: Yeah, so I'm like, well, yeah, you know, you can be like, I don't understand, I don't understand, but then you're like, well, that kind of, yeah, it happens. Yeah, I think this is one of those room for interpretation, and it's interesting because I do associate it with Gone with the Wind and Scarlett Mm O'Hara and that scene with Rhett, which is, it could be interpreted as a rape scene, or it could be, or maybe it's not, I don't know. And so there is, like... Yeah. Is she unconscious? Is she conscious? Has she like given up? And now she's like, ki- kind of, I don't know. It's I was watching Emily in Paris and I guess Sartre said like not choosing is still choosing. So even though she's just kind of like giving up the mm-hmm. thing, but still like not really consenting everything. But it's and he says something like we've all, kind of like we've been doing this dance. That's not what he says. But just like it was almost inevitable. That this was going to happen. And every time I feel like she has frequently said or asked Stella, you know, that she not be in the same room alone with Stanley. She doesn't even want to be in the same room with him, which is hard because they just have fabric separating everything. But it's like she knew that this was inevitable. Which is which makes that character, I think, even more tragic. So I think how it happens is very ambiguous. Um, I think I mean, this character, Stanley, is is so it's hard to redeem him. I don't know if he's I know you're going to ask a question later on about his his, that character and the B word. Um, I just I it's hard to it is hard. Like his wife just had a baby. (laughs) And he has sex with or rapes
1: his sister-in-law. Sister-in-law.
0: It's insane. And then they cart her off. Mm -hmm. They cart her off. They basically, yeah, do a woman in the attic situation like Bertha Rochester and uh, get rid of her. And I can't believe that. I think that deep down Stella does know that this happened because – Blanche may have been a pathological mm-hmm. liar because she's had traumas in the past, but she is broken yeah. at Shot the her. end and there's a reason why that happened. Um so yeah, you've got to ask like how did this transformation happen? There had to have been a catalyst. Yeah. So it's uh again, this is not an uplifting play. I think it's very powerful in all of these things that are happening, But yeah, when you have that scene and it's just Stanley and Blanche, like I was nervous the entire mm-hmm. time, like because Blanche never wanted to be alone with him. She. Yeah. And here here we go. Um,
1: it's, a, it's a tense, yeah. tense scene. Absolutely. And, um, it. It is uh, we have seen a violence out of Stanley throughout the play that when he when he tosses aside a table and goes after her, it, it, that has been building as well. You know, that, that, that amount of violence out of him has been building as well. You can tell he has been holding it back for a certain amount. You know, he, he is toxic and he is, he is violent, Even in the way he plays around with them, like you mentioned, turning on the radio and and these sorts of things, then it escalates. And there are times where, like, you can tell that nobody knows when he's going to go off. He is that he is that volatile. And this is just, you know, uh, again, it it, it escalates and escalates and escalates to the point where he is um, he is at his worst. And worst, and if he is at his worst, I think you're right. She shattered as a result at the end. And then, and I, I, th- I would say it's a similar situation to Bertha Rochester. I mean, in this case, they're having her, they're, they're taking her away, they're locking her away, and 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 that, that's yeah. kind of what happened there, right? You know, um, in this case, she's never going to come set fire to herself and come back, or whatever happens. And, I think Blanche is just going to be lobotomized. And, you know, and that's part of what they did back then, too. And it's probably, um, you know, uh, it, like we said, that was Williams's own sister had a similar mental health issue, had a mental health issue and a mental breakdown and ended up being lobotomized as well. So there was some truth to that as to what happened with with as far as the mental health aspects of this. Is I guess I'll ask that question, because honestly, I looked at it. I looked up the definition I did too he kind of is a Byronic hero in that because yeah. the Byronic hero is just this awful awful man that we're supposed to love anyway and it, like the epitome of the Byronic hero is uh, Heathcliff in right. uh, Wuthering Heights a novel that neither of us and Helena Greer do not like um <laughs> Uh, but yeah, he is no, he I... the epitome of the, my ironic hero. I mean, he's the what? He's the textbook example, right. and he is awful to the women in his life. Kowalski's kind of the same way, but it's almost like—I think in some way. Now I don't know. I don't know if this is right. This is my interpretation, and I maybe I just want this to be true. I think maybe Tennessee Williams is setting him up to look like a Byronic hero but showing how just god-awful this person this type of person is maybe that's just my hope because I don't like the idea of a Byronic hero I don't think they should be as uh celebrated as they tend to be well
0: you know who a Byronic hero is Batman
1: well he is he's a jerk
0: Batman's Yeah, I I think, you know, I think Edward Rochester is a Byronic hero. I think that there is, because I was also looking at definitions just to kind of be sure, you know, a brooding kind of type. But I think there is like an inner softness or like a deep thinker in there. And while we could say that there are times where Stanley is gentle and loving towards Stella, I feel like the bad outweighs Mm -hmm. the good. And so I just think – and it's been a while since I've read Wuthering Heights, and I don't have many positive yeah, it's been, it's
1: been a good thoughts about
0: Heathcliff. Yeah, so I, I don't know if I could be like, oh, well, you know, he's about the same as Heathcliff. But yeah, Edward Rochester, I mean, does have – like he's – I would say even you have to agree he's like better than Oh, yeah, I would, I would <laughs> – if, the st-
1: if there's kind of like a, a scale – of good person to bad person, Rochester leans more toward the good than the bad.
0: Yeah. Especially compared to Stanley Yeah. I mean, if, if Williams, Mr. Williams wanted to craft him into one, I think perhaps, but I think he really wanted to make it, um, as difficult as possible for the audience to like Stanley.
1: Yeah. I think you're right.
0: And then you have to ask, yeah, because I mean, what redeeming qualities would you say Stanley has?
1: I don't know. I mean,
0: because that last scene, yeah, where let's see here, they're sitting out there. You're like, okay, well, do things. This stage direction gets me. I read it a couple times. He kneels beside her, and his fingers find the opening of her blouse. And the reason why that gets me is like this guy is all about like just like bestiality, like being like just animality. It's I don't think they're I think it is all about sex and power mm-hmm. and he might conflate that with love and like softness and gentleness and maybe doesn't know what it's like to be without Stella. But it's just like reading that stage direction where she's holding the baby and he's basically like on his way to grow prime just like. Who is this? There's nothing redeemable about this man. That would have been the time. Like, had he put his arm around her shoulder? Yeah, I would have said, like, maybe. He's probably going to hit her again. But, hey, we're in a calm period. But that right there? No. And I think that's a very specific stage direction that Tennessee Williams put down.
1: Yeah. The only thing, the funny thing is, is what I can find out of the, the redeeming quality of Stanley Kowalski has less to do with Stanley Kowalski and more of I can see how all of this makes Marlon Brando a sex symbol. Like where like so I, I can yeah. I can I can picture Brando's shirtless is on the cover of the copy that I have. And um I Same. can I can I can easily picture him in the role. And I'm I'm glad that Williams and Kazan, in both the play and the film, chose somebody as and and young Marlon Brando is an attractive man, like objectively attractive. There's that, you know. Oh yeah. And I'm glad that it was a case that they deliberately chose someone who had that sort of raw sex appeal, because it, it had they chosen some like balding schlub. You know, if, the guy, if, if if he looked like me more than he looked like Brando, you would really wonder what the hell saw this guy. But like, you know, you have he, he I can see how like women or, 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 or men would have seen Brando in this movie. And then, of course, on all the waterfront been like, oh, man, like, you know, poster boy, you know, like the, the, the whole the whole of the of the essence of it. But that's the actor. And that's what the actor brought to the role and how he embodied the role. But there's nothing in Stanley as a character on the page that I find redeeming. Um, he is, I think he is, uh, I don't know. He, there's a villainous aspect to him. He is complicated in that he's not mustache twirling. You know, there there's some mm-hmm. dimension to him. There is depth to him as a character. But in the end of the day, I just he's just, he, he's he is he's an awful, awful, uh, awful man. And he kind of fits like so. I, I grabbed a few of these questions from like I was just searching up AP Lit questions for *Streetcar Named Desire* <laughs> and found them. And uh, Williams is said to have made his characters quote, "My little company of the faded and frightened, the difficult." The odd, the lonely, and I think there's a lot of characters in here that are recognizable. Uh, for this description, we could talk about Blanche as having been faded, Stella being part of this. You know, there's a loneliness in Blanche, even in Mitch, and Stanley. I, I guess I would fit in this as well, and I think that's what makes this play so compelling. The these characters are very, very complicated people. And these seem very, very real to me as opposed to at the time what you would have seen in the movies, which you didn't tend to get complicated characters in movies very often around this era. Here and there you would. But but most of the time, especially on television, it was very simply, very simply stated, very simply presented. Um, Stanley Kowalski is not Ralph Cramden from The Honeymooners, you know, to the moon, Alice and all that. There's always this. I'm going to yell at you and threaten this and blah, blah, blah. And we're going to play it off for laughs. And like, no Stanley's actually, yeah, I see a reality. I see these people. Uh, I'm, and and now that I've, I've run myself into a tangent ground, pick up that baton. (laughs) I'm sorry. No. uh, Yeah.
0: I, I see it as well. Um, I think I probably find Blanche the most compelling which it's very interesting that you would imagine this to be a marriage story because I, I think also I see lots of you know what are relationships like between men and women, either single men and women or married men and women, and it's, certainly it certainly doesn't do any favors to marriage. I it, I don't think anyone has a good marriage in this particular no play. I mean even that rich guy that Blanche is all about um, down in Texas with the oil fields, he, if it's true, because, you know, we can only take her words with a grain of salt, (laughs) that he, you know, is communicating with her at some point, or, you know, she reached out to him or vice versa, then he's, you know, he's got something on the side. So it's like, oh, gosh, you know, are there, we're also looking at, kind of the negative aspects of marriage as well. But no, these are people that we could meet on on the streets. Um, It's people that we could be having, you know, being friends with people and maybe knowing that something's not quite right, but not necessarily doing anything to stop it, which is, you know, something that does, in fact, happen. Um, And yeah, they're, they're all Dealing with something. I I guess I just love the complexity of Blanche and how thoroughly a woman that, you know, she is and that she's punished for it. So, I mean, if we think about Rebecca from Rebecca, Mm -hmm. she was not... There wasn't a positive light on her, even though like one could say like she was just being a fem- like she wasn't a nice person for sure. But being a feminist, like if she wants to, you know, be in relationships with men, um, why can't she? But men can do that kind of thing. And here Blanche, she yes, she could be a call girl. She could be a prostitute um, trying. But she's she's like trying to make ends meet. And, you know. The the sex trade is is an actual profession now. So, of course, the times have changed and being a woman and getting older and having that self-consciousness about you um, or feeling that you look older because of that whole thing with the lamp and never wanting to be seen in bright light, um, which which is crazy, like a crazy mm-hmm. detail uh, that we see throughout the play. Um, and just how society really puts a lot of pressure on women to, yeah, be long, younger, act younger, pretend to be younger with their age and everything. Like she is almost the quintessential woman. And look at how much she suffers for it, unfortunately. And then to be sexually assaulted, raped, um, having sex, definitely without her consent and not be believed. Yeah. Like there's like another thing. So I feel like almost Tennessee Williams is like writing something ahead of his time or addressing issues that were definitely happening. But no one really kind of sh- have had sh- 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 shown, <laughs> shown a light on it as we are now and are more concerned about it now. So definitely, yeah, these are all people, I think, or parts of people and parts of different stories that we absolutely see. Um on the street, this all is like something that we would encounter, uh, which is, I think, one of the reasons why he is such a compelling yeah. playwright, because they are so down to earth, and we could potentially envision ourselves in one of these characters or partially.
1: Yeah, and, and I think you, I liked your point about how ahead of his his time he was, because I don't get the feeling that we're supposed to, even back then, we were supposed to interpret Stanley as. A nice person like, you know, he, the, the, I don't know, maybe I'm just being presumptuous here, but our interpretation of this. I think is what he was going for in in the 1950s, so this isn't looking at it from a 2023 lens or, you know, um, Stanley is an awful person. You know, he's not all of a sudden problematic because it's 2023 and 1947, you know, so. So, yeah, and I think this is why the story and the, the play itself holds up so incredibly well, and and how why it keeps getting staged and restaged because there's nothing in it that doesn't still resonate today. Unfortunately, you <laughs> know, uh, and such. Um, any last thoughts or anything that I think we might have missed? You know, I did have a question about the allegorical emphasis on the streetcar named Desire, the use of the phrase Elysian fields," which I believe is a reference to where like. Greeks go to the, uh, to the afterlife or some something regarding the afterlife in Greek mythology? Am I, am I missing? Am I...
0: Aren't you glad you yeah, have the question Yeah, yeah, you're the classicist. I, think, I think that's why so I dropped that this I question can in can tell here, you all about that. You
1: know, um, with, with all these yes.
0: Sort of things. Um, yes, Elysian Fields, you're going to have to remind me what that was in the play. I remember reading it. In Greek mythology, um As well as Roman mythology. Uh, So the underworld, basically everyone goes to the underworld Mm -hmm. when you die. But it is broken up into different pieces. Um, For average everyday people, they'll go to Asphodel Field, like if you just had nothing. But you've got like the bad places if you've like Tartarus and things, if you've done like really sinful things. And only like heroic personalities will go to the Elysian fields. So someone who's like super virtuous or like Hector, you're going to find mm. over there, that kind of thing. Um, what was it in it's, this play? Can you remind me? It's one of the
1: very first, uh, it's one of the very first scenes. Um, in fact, I think it's her first line, uh, believe it or not. She gets off the street car and, uh, she sees Eunice and, um, Eunice says, "What's the matter, honey? Are you lost?" And Blanche says, with faintly hysterical humor, "They told me to take a streetcar named Desire and then transfer to one called Cemeteries and ride six blocks and get off at Elysian Fields." So, and and she says, Eunice uh, says, "That's where you are now, Elysian Fields. This here is Elysian Fields. They mustn't have." understood what number I wanted. What number are you looking for? 632. You don't have to look no further. I'm looking for my sister, Stella Dubois. I mean, Mrs. Stanley Kowalski. That's the party. You did miss her. You did, just did miss her though and everything. So it's it's an, it's an establishing um, piece of dialogue, um, a scene setting piece of dialogue. Yeah. Maybe ironic in the sense because she's like...
0: Yeah. It is ironic because, yeah, you would expect something wonderful and beautiful and have these yeah. great characters and it is certainly not that... Um, But it is interesting that you go through cemeteries. Yeah. Um, Yeah. As for the (laughs) streetcar, literally Mm -hmm. name desire. Um, Man. Well, I mean, I think it goes back to that, that quote. Certainly. I think it's just always there. And so we have a a physical manifestation of it as well. Um, I, what, what are your thoughts on the relationship between Stella and Blanche as sisters Um, it's interesting because, well, the age thing, Mm -hmm. she is, Blanche is a bit older, even though she tells Mitch that she is younger uh, by a year or something, but we know why she would do that. But it seems like she carried the burden of the estate, um, which I, which I found interesting, of course, then it was her fault when all that stuff, but she's also responsible for burying all her relatives. I also found it interesting any sentimentality makes Stella very uncomfortable between the two of them, yeah. if you notice that. Yeah. Like when Blanche is being very honest or being sentimental, Um yeah, Stella doesn't want any any part of that, which I, I wonder wonder where that comes from. And perhaps that's why she likes Stanley, because Stanley's not sentimental. No. So maybe she likes well- – Um, But, yeah, the relationship between the two of them, because I feel like Blanche really loves her sister. She really cares for her. Um, But I, yeah, I feel like Stella really did her dirty in the end. And I know that's very, it's very complicated um, with battered women and wives and things. Uh, But, yeah, it's just crazy to watch that whole violent scene unfold with the... The female nurse. I can't remember what her actual title. Mm-hmm. What title was I the
1: doctor? was the word that was used.
0: Um, yeah, yeah, and just so I mean, Stella is like she. Does seem kind because she always, you know, she tells Stanley say something nicer. Mm-hmm. She tells Eunice to say something nice to her, but I just don't know if I see as much affection towards, and this might just be her uh, discomfort with it, but as much affection towards her sister as Blanche has towards her. Uh, yeah, there's Stella. a little bit
1: of embarrassment about her. Um, not Stella's not Stella's almost embarrassed of, uh, you know, for. Uh, you do you get the sense? It, it's, I don't know. There, I think there are lines of dialogue that imply that Stella left Belrev like a while ago, and they hadn't seen each other a while. And so she left Blanche to do these things. And you get the sense that Stella wanted out of that trap, fell into another one with Stanley. But that, that, she, that she she deliberately She like it's a stripping away of her own past. Like she doesn't really acknowledge that she grew up in this gentility, you know, in this society as it was at the Mm -hmm. time and doesn't want, seem to want to in the sense that like, you know, she's rejecting it. And then maybe in, in some sort of symbolic way, at least what we could put on an AP lit, lit essay, that's the final rejection at the end the way that she has her sister carded off. Like it's, It's not a it's not a happy ending obviously it's, this is a tra- tragic play and she is she is fighting with a lot and she is dealing with a lot she's taking a lot but this was one thing that she it seemed like she swore I don't know I'm maybe reading too much into this I think she swore to be completely done with this and Blanche turned up in her life in a in a way that she didn't expect nor want. And in the end, she's yeah. like, I have to get yeah, rid of be her.
0: True. I mean, yeah, I think. Yeah, I feel like picking Stanley is also a way of um, rebelling against potentially yeah. her
1: her past. Yeah. The, she she seems or yeah, she seems to flat out reject her past or her upbringing. So. Yeah. Well, our last question, as always. <laughs> is this required um, reading?
0: Geez, I think it has to be a very specific context um, because I would say Glass Menageries is, is required reading uh, and you can kind of deal with some of these like Southern themes. And I think it's gentler and easier to maybe converse with students about. And this one's going to be hard. And I think you need to have a mature yes body mm-hmm. class body in order to have these discussions and be willing to be like brutally honest about um, manhood and masculinity and things like that so i i do think that people should read it but i think the context like <laughs> very seriously matters. i'm gonna
1: agree with you there like i had said earlier there are certain works of literature that i would put on a syllabus for a exploration of manual uh, manually masculinity in in uh in literature and this would be one of them i think the only other place Rice that said this is required reading is if you were a student of theater this would be one of the plays that you probably would need to read yeah. at some point because you want to be a playwright or you want to be a, a stage actor or something i think there's the from a quality of a play standpoint it's 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 necessary and this is saying somebody who took like, as somebody who took exactly one playwriting class in college. So, you know, yeah. Do with that, what you will. Um, Indeed. So, uh, getting into feedback, um, and then, and then we have Stella and I have a little bit more of, um, of the discussion of another book. Uh, but, uh, we, uh, had a couple of notes of feedback from Robert Ward, um, who at the end of our episode at the end of our episode of um, about season of love we did mention that we were covering The Handmaid's Tale. So when this is being recorded, The Handmaid's Tale episode won't be out for another week. But we talk in 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 our upcoming episode we that's going to be out next week. Uh, we talk about briefly about the TV series with them. What is their name? It's not Peggy Olson. Uh, oh, I was like uh, I wonder why uh, you were. Uh, thank you, it was Elizabeth with Moss. Moss. I'm like,
0: like, damn,
1: maybe because I'm looking at my wife has the Peggy Olson pop figure. <laughs> oh, <laughs> it's interesting. The one where she's holding the box and has the sunglasses and the cigarette hanging out of her mouth. It's next to oh, her Joan.
0: Sophisticated. Yeah, and it's next to her
1: Joan Holloway pop figure. Anyway. Um. Back to the thing I was saying about Robert as I'm yeah. staring at my wife, my wife's office. She's got all she's got a bunch of hot figures and Wonder Woman paraphernalia and stuff. Um, he mentioned the nineteen ninety movie version. It was with uh, Natasha Richardson as offered and fade done away as Serena Joy. Um, now I'm kind of curious because I do love my Ma- I do love me oh, some mommy self. dearest. So. Yeah. um and oh, uh, also, at, he also asked us if we have any interest in covering the novel *Wide Sargasso Sea*, uh, which we actually mentioned. Bertha Richardson, I believe she—Bertha Richardson, Bertha Rochester.
0: Bertha Richardson. I just said Natasha
1: Richardson. Bertha Rochester, um, okay. who I believe is the main character of *Wide Sargasso Sea*, um, has a connection to Jane Eyre. I know. Um, yeah. It's it's on my little poster. It's 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 somewhere on the list. I would imagine that we may get around to it at some point. I I do want to ask you before we get into we are going to talk a little bit about the testaments and that's Margaret Margaret Atwood's sequel to uh, the Handmaid's Tale. Before right we get into that, you did dear reader, um, and the reason that Robert brought up White Sargassus he said it wasn't. Not covered on season one of Dear Reader with Jane Eyre. What are you doing for season two? I'm just we're just out of curiosity. So you can promote oh, your own show.
0: Tom, thank you for asking. That's so kind of you. Yes, Dear Reader season two. I, you know, I went from a niche book to an even oh. nicher book. <laughs> So I am doing a play from 1936 called The Women by Claire Booth Luce. And the entire play is literally only a cast of characters uh, played by women. And the ensemble does get pretty large, but it's kind of this group. And there's almost like this head woman who's very kind. And we find out that her husband is having an affair with a – uh, a shop, a clerk, mm-hmm. a shop clerk girl, uh, someone at like, um, you yeah. know, Sears or something like that, but in the 60s or the 30s, and you see how people react to that. Like, do they support her? Um, Are they kind of happy that she might reach her downfall? How does she react and deal with her family and everything? And so it's very much about like female friendships and how they can be both uplifting as well as caddy and really pulling you down. And then there are three different adaptations from 1939, which has an amazing cast. And it's almost verbatim of the actual play 1956, which I have actually not seen that one yet. Uh, called The Opposite Sex. And then 2008 with Meg Ryan as the that main mm. woman and even oh. like all it, that also has a good cast. And I also think that's uh, a good one. So for mental health reasons, I've, you know, cut down, I've picked something with like a smaller mm. little um, cabinet of. Interpretations, but I really like that play and thought it would be interesting to dive into, um, yeah, looking at kind of the psychology of, of female friendships.
1: No, I know that the as of our recording this, I think the trailer dropped recently. When is the first? When is the I first did? episode out? I know. Oh, I can't can say because okay, okay, I don't right. know. <laughs> so just, just, just.
0: Yeah, I yeah. um no, I thought I had like big plans of like, oh, I've got you know this grad school is done for Mm -hmm. the semester can i do this out but it just got um well work just was bad so it was more like just trying to survive that but um here's hoping i think you know early 2003 23 which we're in um so (laughs) sometimes the first one's always the hardest because it's the analysis of the actual you know subject matter so that one's the one that there's a lot of work that goes into that one, and the other ones are just like I'm watching a film and talking about it. So if I can get that first one down, I'll, I'll feel pretty good about it. But you'll be the first to know. Yeah,
1: over up. in Fire and Water Podcast. Uh, that That's the network. That yeah, it's thank in. So you. Just, just check that out. Look out. Watch out for that. And like I said, we both of us and um, – I don't know if it was on purpose. I mean, for me, it was kind of on purpose. I read The Handmaid's Tale. I looked and saw whether or not my library had, or our library, had a copy of The Testaments. The Testaments came out, it um, was 2009, um, maybe a little later, 2019 or something, um, within the last decade or two, uh, which was Margaret Atwood doing a sequel to The Handmaid's Tale. and uh, And then I think you read it after I did. Or
0: Yeah, we may have intersected, but I would say after
1: probably. And so the instead of being one story, because remember, The Handmaid's Tale is all from the point of view of of, of Fred. Um, I keep saying Alfred, but yep. of Fred. Um, there is I think it's like four different characters. Uh, we have a young girl in. Gilead, who is the daughter of a commander, the adopted daughter of a commander, who um, her and her friends eventually go into the um, uh, training program to become ants. Basically, uh, there's another one who is maybe there's only three. Uh, there's another yeah. Girl. There's another one who's a girl in Toronto who is free and she is um her parents were kind of like the weather underground type or the underground railroad type helping people get out of Gilead and gets um, and they get they get blown up. Um, and it turns out that she has a connection to Gilead. I'm trying not to spoil too much in case people are interested in reading. And then the third person is um, Aunt Lydia herself and Aunt Lydia is uh, one of the architects of the, she's one of the like the, almost the second in command or the first lady, first woman, or whatever we want to call it, of of the nation. And she helped establish and build much of this infrastructure for the suppression and the exploitation of women that goes on in, in The Handmaid's Tale. Um, I read it pretty quickly, um, and I found it. Once I realized it's more of a companion to The Handmaid's Tale than a direct sequel, I was really in, you know, because I went and think it was Mm going to be a sequel. I didn't know, like, I I was going to, oh, we're going to see, you know, what happened to Alfred and and like, you know, because I had no knowledge of what the book was other than some people seem to like it and some people seem to not. So I went kind of in blind, but I knew it was a sequel, and I was expecting to see our characters, and I saw and I saw how it was structured, and I was like, oh wait, I realized that like if you think of this as a companion piece that's set later, so you're getting a little bit more history, you're getting a little bit of knowledge down the road. Um, I think that is a really it's a really good one. And I really, really enjoyed it. Especially the Aunt Lydia stuff. Um because her whole thing is that we get the backstory of the establishment of the state, because when we got the backstory of the establishment of um, Gilead in the handmaid's tale, it was from all the, from the point of June. And, and we saw the things happen to her with Lydia. It's the things are happening to her. And then there's all the conditioning. It's in horrific conditions. And then we get to see like, how did she become this person? And then she has all the keys to bringing the place crashing down. And um, it's very possible that she does. Uh, Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I I really thought that was cool. What did you, I mean, what did you think of that part of it? Before we get into the the whole, there's a female friendship part of this, too, that I thought was really fascinating. But before that, Aunt Lydia. Yeah,
0: well, it's interesting. Yeah, it's interesting because you, Aunt Lydia seems like a, a villain, I mean, an antagonist from a Fred slash June's mm-hmm. perspective in the Handmaid's Tale. So you almost wonder if your feelings are being manipulated into, you know, having sympathy for this particular person or is she being redeemed uh, against our mm-hmm. desires? Um, but it, yeah, it is interesting to see that. And it's, I, I think it's just like point proven about empathy that, you know, everyone's story, you don't know yeah. everyone's story. And so you can kind of see, um, how it got there yes from uh we we had june's perspective of the downfall of the u.s and then we have from another perspective of someone who was kind of high up in the in the judicial system um and then what it was like to for the ants to Mm -hmm. become ants that kind of thing so that that was very interesting um, and also her machinations, I think, were very... <laughs> so even though you do have sympathy for her, I think you're also like, well, she's still doing some crazy stuff.
1: You, I found... I, I always had to remind herself that she was inherently a horrible person because of what she allowed to happen and what she did and how complicit she is in all of this, but at the same time, yeah. I found her likable in that she played, she, she hated Jacob, I believe is the name of the president, quote unquote, of, or the commander that Judd, Jud, yeah, sorry, sons of Jacob is the name of the kind of cult, yeah. but uh, Judd and Judd is, um, she's playing the long game against him. She's trying to enact her revenge. For what, you know, what had happened and how he took, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, And uh, I thought that was brilliant. So I had a lot of appreciation for her character, but I never lost sight of the fact that she was like what she what had to happen for her to achieve her goal was this horrific, horrific place. And I'm like, no, I can't. I'm not I'm rooting for you to bring the place down because I want to see the place fall, but I'm not rooting for you to be the hero because you're not a hero. So I thought, and I thought Atwood did that pretty deftly. I really liked her origin story because I also liked that perspective of how these things were happening and, and, and what have you. Yeah. Yeah. Then we have we have girls we have the the whole idea of friendship um, and you had put female friendships in, in in parentheses with an exclamation point that's why I said it so with such with such vim yes. and vigor um so what what do you think what do you think this tells us about the book would tell us about female friendships
0: yeah because I and the reason why I brought it up is because as a editing Handmaid's Tale I remarked about – I wondered what it would be like to see it in – like if this existed in this mm. book because it seems so sterile in Handmaid's Tale that there really aren't any female friendships just like travel companions. But here we actually get to see it, but I think it's a privilege. Yeah. I think be given – the people that are actual friends, they are commanders' daughters or people higher up in society or useful in society because of the dentist, and, um, yeah. So it's it's a pr- because that is a privileged position. So in school, you might and some of it might be fake because we do see that depending on the the commander some of these daughters want to be friends with the other daughters. So like, you know, which is probably being pushed by the, yeah. the parents, but I felt like, and so I think handmaids aren't really ever going to be friends unless, I mean, maybe, but I really loved the beauty of the relationship between the, the two girls that get out of their marriages to mm-hmm. commanders and become aunts and just like self-sacrificial love. And, um, Golly. Yeah. One helping the other grow and reading and, you know, knowledge of God and um, the other one working or helping one through trauma. And they kind of both experience similar trauma. So I, I found it very beautiful. But we find out that it's yeah, it's a privilege to have yeah. friends in that world.
1: Which and is even crazy. then, like you said, there's gamesmanship. Yeah. Um, it's, it's almost like one big junior high school cafeteria in some way. There's like, you know, your popularity and stuff like that. And then the really horrific thing, which, again, going back to toxic masculinity and going back to some of the people here, the child bride aspect of all of this, the fact that these young girls are taken and one of them at one point in the novel is going to be married off at like... 16, maybe even younger. They're, they're not 18 when it happens. and if, I think yeah. they might be younger than 13. I'd
0: say Mary's yeah. age. And,
1: yeah, and yeah. Down so down. there's that whole child bride aspect to all of it, which is disgusting. But, you know, we look at... You look at some of the more um, kind of disgusting men who are on Twitter, and to use a Southern phrase, you can't swing a dead cat without hitting a disgusting man on Twitter. There oh. is a and this is a whole other discussion you can have like over on my show, pop culture, every day we could do a whole, probably do a whole episode if we wanted to about this whole fetishization of quote unquote jailbait, you know, yeah. the really just the, the sexualization of teen girls and the way that like, um, you know, the, from everything from celebrity gossip stuff to celebrity culture, to, um, to to entertainment that features teenage characters, to actual pornography, there is this uh, fetishization of the girl who is just young enough, right? And um, you know, Lolita probably being one of the better, uh, well-known literature versions of that and you know underage and just just an age so there's this whole thing within this novel with underage girls and they're marrying them and it's it's disgusting but it it i think atwood has a really good commentary on it as well through it and uh, and the friendship that the women the young women have serves them very well in this book um and then there is this also does close with a lecture from the same guy who does the lecture at the end of The Handmaid's Tale. And, and I found that I, fascinating, too, because I love nerdy things like
0: that. <laughs> yeah. He makes the impromptu he, joke yeah, about... Yeah. He's like, yeah. I promised I wouldn't make yeah. any jokes that make you feel uncomfortable. I will say this novel, I think, was worse than the other novel in in the things that yeah. happen. I think because uh, just piggybacking off of what you're talking about with how young that we know that these girls are and what they're going through. And it's also I think Handmaid's Tale was lots of mm-hmm. subtext and there was not a lot of um, in your face of what was mm-hmm. going on um, until uh, w- with the exception, I think, of the, the mm-hmm. ceremony. But now you've got, yeah, all of this stuff that's happening and it's happening to these children basically um uh, makes it worse and yeah commander judd is like jeez, <sighs> let's put it well, who, who's worse commander judd or um who poisons his children whose child brides after yeah. they've out outlived yeah. their usefulness <sighs> um yeah compare him to stanley but it yeah this one just is like oh my gosh it's more horrific than mm-hmm. the handmaid's tale yeah
1: so but i did enjoy it i would recommend it um and like i said if you just act as if it's a companion piece there is some there's some hinting around with a connection to of fred the beginning uh, in the first one i mean of the first story but it's not a um you don't have to read one to read the other let's just say that and and i think it's a good companion piece so cool i'm glad we got a chance to just kind of You know, BS about that a little bit because we just, yeah.
0: Chat about it, yeah.
1: So, yeah. Speaking of chats, we've got another one coming up in a month. Stella, what are we reading for next episode?
0: Well, friends, listeners, companions, Tom, and I'll remember, Tom. Decided for himself, being the man of oh, this geez. podcast and wanting power and control over me, that he was going to take all of the holidays. So he took
1: it's just in time for Valentine's this Day, this romantic doing, yeah, period,
0: and gave it. Desire. Yeah, this abusive relationship, I know. And so I've got March, and I thought, why not do Julius Caesar again by William Shakespeare? But I thought, no, I better not do that, because then Tom will be really upset. But originally, when I thought I was going to have February and was like really hurt when I didn't, I was thinking about this one particular novel. So I'm going to still do it, because it's related to Latin, so I think it'll be okay. But it's also about a very toxic... Um, Not even relationship, but kind of a stalker Mm. and sexual assault, things like that. So all wrapped into one book, so might as well just keep going. I know, indeed. It's called The Latinist by Mark Grins.
1: All right. Well, you'll hear us talk about that next time around. And until then, of course, give us Mm -hmm. uh, all the feedback and stuff. Let us know what you thought about all of this. And as always, thank you very much for listening. And take care.
0: And listen, if you want to catch a lady, all you got to do is wear a silk bowling S- shirt. And, you know, maybe with a couple buttons. I, I
1: guess them. that worked for a bunch of guys in the late 90s. That was a trend for a little while, wasn't it? Yeah,
0: there you go. Yeah.
1: Some of those guys were skeeves, too. They were kind of Stanley <laughs> Kowalski in their way. All there right. There
0: you go. <laughs> Good night. Goodbye. for listening to Required Reading with Tom and Stella, which is brought to you by two, true, that's two true. If you're interested in learning more about the books we read or want to comment on the episode, follow us on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Required Reading with Tom and Stella.
1: If you would like to email us to comment on the episode or continue our discussion, you can reach us at requiredreadingcast at gmail.com. We will read every email we get on future episodes.
0: We're looking for more visibility, so if you liked this episode or the show in general, why not leave us a review in iTunes? Thanks again for listening, and come back next month for our next episode. Whoever you are, I have always depended on the kindness of
1: strangers. You can always depend
0: on the kindness of strangers To buck up your spirits when shooting
1: from dangers Now here's a tip from Blanche you won't regret A stranger's just afraid